Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Have it. You know, just when 2020 couldn't get any weirder, the worst Queensland rugby league side ever assembled in history goes ahead and beats New South Wales in a decider on Wednesday night. So I just want to say congratulations. That we needed it. We needed it. We needed a win, right? Uh, and commiserations to all the New South Wales supporters. God bless you. So the game was happening. I don't know, and, and I've already lost half the crowd. I understand that, but stay with me for a moment. There was a, game, there was a sports event happening on Wednesday night. Anyway, it's an event I look forward to every year because it's the only team I follow that ever has a chance of winning anything, apparently. So I happened to be at a school event that was here. Our college had its graduation evening for all the grade 12s and awards for the 10s and 11s. A great night. And uh, part of our responsibility, I had to be here. And obviously, we locked in that night before they figured out if they were going to do State of Erosion this year or not. So here I was on the front row right there and uh, trying to follow the score because the daylight savings time, they usually kick off at 8, but it was 8 p.m. for the southern states, but 7 p.m. for Queens, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, so I'm there going, knowing I'm going to miss the whole thing. So I'm like trying to follow the scores on my phone, like subtly and trying to meet a good, good example in the front row and paying attention. Oh, clapping, but I'm really clapping because Queensland scored. Anyway... <laughs> joking. I am joking because my internet wasn't working, so I had no idea. But I did have mates text me telling me, Jono, this is the best game that's happened in like five years. I'm like, oh, that makes me feel a whole lot better. As soon as the event finished, you know, the announcement was due to COVID, we have to exit the building straight away. I was out so quick. Like, you would not understand how quick I was gone. And I managed to catch the last two minutes on the radio. Who listens to sport on a radio? This guy. So got home, I caught the, you know, just caught it on the radio. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, Cool, we got the win, hooray, hooray. But then I missed it. There's nothing like experiencing the game, right? It's not the same having your mates rubbing it in. But at the same time, if you've ever been to a live state of, and I'm going somewhere with this, stay with me. Some of you are like, I'm out. We didn't come to church here about some guy yapping on about. Anywho, so I, I've, I've been to one State of Origin match at Suncorp Stadium. And I'm telling you, there's nothing like experiencing the game in the flesh. And the, the highlight of the game, the highlight of the game, you know, at the start when the teams run out into the field, and depending on what state you're in, one team gets viciously booed. And so to be in Queensland at Suncourt Stadium with 52,000 other Queenslanders and to give a collective abusive boo to the New South Wales supporters as they ran in the field, I got goosebumps. I felt, I was like, these are my people. It's an amazing moment, right? You, ha- you have to be there. There's nothing like experiencing something in the flesh. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, funnily enough, here's my segue to Christmas. This is what we're talking about at Christmas, this idea that God is with us. And the story, not just the, the, well, obviously it's the Christmas message, but the Christian message in general is this idea that God clothed himself in the human form and came to earth in a time and place, certain location, we can pinpoint it in history, and he is known as Jesus. And this is what's referred to as the incarnation, the incarnation. Now, if you're someone who's not familiar with church or, you know, Christian speak or whatnot, this is a, a fancy word. It comes from a, a Latin term, the Latin term carne, which means flesh. So this idea that God came in flesh, incarnate, right? So <clears throat> prior to this, God was, and what we know from particularly the Old Testament scriptures, that God would reveal himself to people not in this form, but in great feats of wonder and like splitting seas and you know raining fire and brimstone from heaven and amazing miracles and talking donkeys and miraculous stuff, burning bushes, right? In these incredible ways that people are like, whoa, God's big and real and he's distant and he's too strong. 
But at this moment, 4 BC, just over 2,000 years ago, God came in a way that could relate to every single person and every single person intimately. He came as a person. And He didn't come in riches. He didn't come in wealth and in pomp and in power. He came as a baby to a no-name family in the middle of the backwater of the Roman Empire. Seemingly the most insignificant birth, yet it was within this dynamic that God entered the pages of history, of history. And if this indeed is a historical event that took place, that God walked among the planet and it's recorded and people saw him. That's why we got the New Testament out. These people wrote down, we experienced God in the flesh. God was with us. Well, surely, surely there must be something unique about this historical figure because there'd be many historical figures, right? Many people that have made a difference in the world, have left their mark in the world. Was Jesus unique in his mark that he left in history? Now, don't just take my word for this or a Christian's word. There's one of the most remarkable historians of the 19th and 20th century. Many of you will be familiar, funnily enough, with his work and films. He wrote such uh, works as The War of the World, if any of you are into that. But H.G. Wells, H.G. Wells is a remarkable historian who was not a Christian, not a believer at all, but yet he wrote this about the historical figure of Christ. And he said, he said, the historian's test, the historian's test, and if you've studied history, you'd love this stuff, right? Because the test of an individual's greatness to know if someone really stacks up as a great historical figure is this. What did he leave to grow? Not just what did he accomplish during his time, you know, did he amass great wealth and army and prestige and power and position? It's not simply that. It's did he, did something grow after him? Did things expand after their departure? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with the vigor that persists after him? And H.G. Wells' conclusion is, by this test, Jesus stands first out of all historical figures. So we recognize, there was, even the secular historian can see that what came after Jesus, what has grown from Jesus, the impact that the life of this man has made, it is unique, it is massive, and it is significant. I like to think of it in this analogy, that you can gauge the size of a ship that is passed by out of sight by the huge wake it leaves behind. The bigger the wake, the bigger the ship. And here was God with us in the flesh 2,000 years ago. Again, the backwater of the Roman Empire in the most politically insignificant spot that they knew to a family that wasn't known. He left no, no last name. He left no property. He didn't even write anything himself. Yet look at the wake of history. Here we are sitting in a shed in Mumbai on Kill Mountain Road in the year 2020 talking about him. Talk about historical significance. Now, there's a lot to take in, especially I recognize if you are someone who wouldn't consider yourself a believer, maybe you're not even sure of even the existence of God. And so to take this in, this is like a big deal. Well, stay with me because you are not alone. In fact, when this took place, the birth of Christ, those who were eyewitnesses to the event and those who were most intimately impacted by this we're, we're struggling just the same way you would struggle with the idea of the facts around this. Now, to give you the background, we're going to jump into a story here in the New Testament, the very first book of our New Testament written by Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and his gospel was written to a Jewish audience. That's why there's kind of a lot of backstory of Old Testament narratives and Old Testament scriptures. So the audience that Matthew originally wrote to would have totally understood a lot of the, the scriptures he was referring to here. And we're going to pick up the story of when... Um, uh, Joseph, the betrothed uh, future husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, had just found out that Mary was pregnant. 
Now you think, well, that's great news. You know, the woman of your dreams is pregnant. The problem when, number one, you're not the father. And secondly, she's saying, yeah, uh, the father's the Holy Spirit. So as you can imagine, Joseph's in a bit of a predicament here. And he was a good guy and he didn't want to throw his, you know, his fiance to the wolves. And so he thought about putting her away quietly, not to embarrass her, to keep his own reputation intact. And in, in this moment, while I was considering what to do about the information about his wife saying, honey, I'm pregnant and you're not the father, but our heavenly father is the father. That's okay, right? Second best. Anywho, Joseph was considering this. And this is where we pick up the story. This is in the first chapter of Matthew. It says, after he'd considered this, everything I just talked about, after Joseph considered this, if things couldn't get any weirder for the poor guy, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now think about it. Why, why would this have had to have happened to convince the guy this was true? Let me put you in Joseph's shoes for a moment. What would it take for you to be convinced if your wife or your fiancé was pregnant and was claiming that it was by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> exactly. So Joseph had to have an appearance from an angel. Like, so throw the guy a bone, right? And the angel's like saying, look what he said. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because the guy was freaking out. Now, again, if you're a skeptic about this, it's actually this event, the fact that it's recorded like this, that is one of the greatest bits of uh, evidence that we can trust that these accounts are factual and historic and not changed in any way. Because think of it in this terms. If you were to invent a brand new religion, if you were to invent a brand new religion, and your goal was to spread the news of this new religion or this new belief all across the world, and you wanted everyone to get on board, wouldn't you want to make it as easy as possible, make it kind of digestible? The last thing you would come up with to begin this new faith is to go, yes, our Savior was birthed by a virgin who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? You're not going to do that. People aren't going to be convinced. So spare a thought for poor Matthew who's having to write this down. And all the Jewish people are going, so tell us how this whole Jesus thing began. Okay. Um, his mother Mary got pregnant by God. So if you want, so the only explanation for this is that they weren't writing myth, they weren't writing story, they weren't writing a narrative to try and convince people. This would have been super difficult for them to write because they're like, this ain't going to convince people at all. And funnily enough, in terms of historical accuracy, showing the warts and all of the stories, as it were, is one of the greatest reasons we can trust the narratives here. They didn't try to sugarcoat anything or cover anything up or even make the story palatable. So back to the story. Here we go. So this takes place. Joseph is confronted with the reality of his wife's pregnancy. And, and, and so he's got, now got to believe, he's got to trust God, that God's involved in this. Now, again, right at the core of Christianity is trust. It's believing God. But Christianity did not begin with belief. Christianity began, number one, with an event. The birth of Christianity was the resurrection of Jesus. There'd be many people who were born, many people who had preached, many people who had died, but only one person was ever resurrected. So Christianity was birthed not out of a preaching, not out of something you had to believe. It was birthed because people witnessed a man that they'd seen preach and live, but then crucified and buried. But then they saw him walking around again. It was a event that took place. And it's pretty hard to argue with a guy who predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, right? So Christianity was birthed with an event. So where does the belief part come in? Well, the belief part comes in about believing, believing exactly in what this event means for us. 
And our trust is that the event of the resurrection of Jesus, our trust is that Jesus being resurrected offers humanity salvation and offers humanity the chance to know God personally. And that it's through Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection, that remarkable event on that very first Easter, that humanity now has a chance to know peace with God and indeed know eternal life. That is where the belief part comes in. It's our trusting in that what Jesus accomplished for us historically is enough for us to be saved eternally. That's where the trust and belief part comes into it. But again, like Joseph, like Joseph, you're there stuck with a confronting event. And as much as there's enough evidence for a good student of history, particularly ancient history, to go, okay, there's at least there's enough that sacks up and said something took place 2,000 years ago. Something happened that split BC to AD. Something happened. There still comes a point, like Joseph had, where you will essentially, and most Christians in the building here would say, as much as you've asked questions, you've had a lot of your doubts answered, there's still a moment where you had probably some kind of personal experience with God. Now, it might not have been as dramatic as Joseph's, where you had an angel appear to you and your loved one falls pregnant by God. It might not be as dramatic and you know, radical as that, but you've probably got your story. And if, you ask, if you're someone who's not sure yet about faith and you ask most people in this room, not only do they have good answers for why they believe, they've probably also got an experience or a story to tell you. Maybe for them, it's that they came to the end of their rope in a certain part of their life and they were losing hope. And like all they can explain is that they turn to God and they experience peace and hope and joy like nothing else in the world it offered them. Or maybe, maybe it's for someone, it's they, they had a relationship in their life where they'd lost all hope. Maybe it was a marriage or a child or a parent and they'd given up. And as a last ditch effort, they tried counseling, they tried Dr. Phil, you name it, they tried it all. And they turned to God and somehow without knowing how God softened a heart, God reconciled a relationship and people just go, God intervene in our world. Still, maybe some people have experienced a physical healing. You went to doctors, you tried medicines, whatever it might be, and yet none of that helped, but they would say, someone prayed or I prayed and it, and it blew my doctor's mind because here I am healed and whole. And I could go on and on and on. And again, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that, but likely speaking that even if you've got all your, a lot of your doubts and questions answered, you'll never have them all answered, but a lot, you'll still, like Joseph, will, there is a necessity for some kind of personal experience with God. And our hope and our prayer for you, particularly if you're not a Christian here, is that over the next few weeks, and we ask, and I want to invite you back for this series throughout Christmas, that more than just the events here and, and getting to engage with this conversation and the people you meet, our prayer and hope is that you would have a personal experience with a living God who's personal, who's real, and who is with us. So the story goes on. After Joseph ponders this and the angel appears to him, this is what happened in the very next verse. The angel said to Joseph, she, meaning his wife Mary, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now this name uh, wasn't rare, uh, wasn't super common at the time, but it definitely wasn't rare. So the meaning of the name Jesus that Joseph was to give his son it carried with its significance and it would not have been lost on Joseph in this moment at all. And the name Jesus meant the Lord saves. Fun fact, it's the Hebrew word we get for Joshua. So when you see the word Joshua in the Old Testament, it's the Greek term Jesus. So there you go. But it means this idea of that the Lord saves. So his name 
was to symbolize the very purpose and reason he came to the planet, to save, rescue, redeem, and deliver humanity. Christ became man for the purpose of saving the world. Saving. You ever needed saving before? Has anyone here been rescued before by like a lifesaver or something like that? Like to be saved, right? To, to, to need saving, to need saving. It generally means you have come to the end of your rope. You have exhausted all your own options. <laughs> You've tried everything you could on your own. And you're like, you throw your hands up and go, I need someone to save me. Now, when I think of this, this straight away goes back to a fabled hunting trip that my beloved father decided to take me and my brothers on many moons ago uh, when I was about 11 years of age. And we went to this little place in the southern end of New South Wales called Neriga. It's this like ravine area. There's, I, I did a little research on it last night to find out this place actually existed because my dad was like, yeah, it was in Neriga. I'm like, does that place even exist? It does. Fun fact, there's 57 people there and all the town has is a pub. This gives you an idea of Neriga. Anyhow, we went there hunting, great place for father to take his sons. And so uh, and we took a few buddies with us, a few of our friends who were teenagers at the time. Long story short, we ended up taking a wrong turn and what we thought would be an easy couple of hour hunting trip turned into a fiasco. We started climbing down some pretty sketchy cliff faces and ravines. And just before we reached the bottom, after several hours of scaling down mountains, uh, we, we were almost at the bottom. We're going down on our hands and knees on this steep scree slope, you know, scree like loose rocks. And my dad was right at the top here. You remember this, dad? I'm just going to exaggerate the story. And there was a rock this big, you know, under dad's feet. Anyway, dad's there. Dad's, we didn't know this because we we're like scurrying down the mountain. Dad's holding this rock under his foot because all, all the shower's moving. And eventually the rock gave way. And it, as it starts to go down the mountain, it gains speed. And dad's like, look out, rock's coming. So we were all jumping out of the way. An 18-year-old who's a friend of my eldest brother, Nathan, he didn't catch the memo. But what he did catch was the rock spare in the middle of his spine and he got launched over the end of this mountain and I just can imagine we were just like this is not a good situation so Nathan are you okay no he wasn't Nathan can you walk no I can't walk and so we were in big trouble my dad was like this is my moment to like step up so dad tried to carry this young man it wouldn't happen he was in such a bad state couldn't walk um, and the sun was setting and we just had to realize we're we're not getting out of here so we hunkered in for the night. We didn't have any food with us. Like, what are we going to do? But eventually word got out that these, because obviously our families were waiting for us and we hadn't come home. So word got out that these guys were obviously lost in a ravine. And uh, it must have been in the wee hours of the morning. It was very dark. We started hearing this, oh, I pulled that off. I thought my voice might have broken, but it didn't. <laughs> Anyways, and um, apparently word had got out on the local emergency radar. These guys were all, you know, needed rescuing from this ravine. And the guys who picked up the call were all these drunk bushfires who had knocked off for the day and they're at the pub and it came to them like, why don't we go and rescue them anyway? So they start coming down this ravine and we could hear that they'd had a few and they're having a good laugh. So we thought we'd have a good laugh too. And we knew there was a huge field of stinging nettle in front of us. So we went straight ahead, straight ahead, keep coming, keep coming. It was hilarious. That's mean, guys. Come on, Dad. <laughs> Anyways, luckily, they didn't bring any food with them, but what they did bring with them was a bunch of body bags. So that was handy. So I got to sleep in a body bag for the evening. It was a great experience. Anyway, next morning, next morning, we were woken to the sound of a helicopter overhead and Chop had to lift this guy out. Luckily, I realized I didn't finish his story off in the morning. The guy was okay, da-da-da. Does anyone remember the show uh, Emergency Triple Zero from a long time ago? It was like an original reality show, but it was actually real. It wasn't pretend reality. Anyway, we were on that. Um, so, so we got rescued. The point of that story is 
We couldn't be saved. We needed rescuing. And the issue with this, I remember we climbed out and dad, I'm not exaggerating here. There must have been at least 50 people. Am I right? Like there to rescue us? Dad, even there? Yeah, yeah, I can't hear or see. Great. Thanks, Dad. A hundred people. There's a chopper there. There was police. There was bushfire. There's SES. Even the salvos were there making sandwiches for people. God bless the salvos. And I remember Dad seeing all this fiasco, all the chopper and everything going, for the amount of money this costs, you guys should have saved money, given it to me. We would have just figured out a way to climb the guy out of here ourselves. Like, this is amazing. Because to save, to save costs. This is why rescuers often get frustrated with people who need rescuing from stupid situations that just didn't think because it costs and it's risky. And in the same way, God, Him coming to the planet as a person, it costs Him to save humanity, make no mistake about it, was costly. So humanity must have been in a pretty bad predicament for God to have to give everything to come and rescue us. We must have been at the end of our rope. So if indeed his name was Jesus, and it means the Lord saves, what exactly did he come to save us from? The verse goes on and we read, she will give birth to a son, you give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. (laughs) Their sins? Now, if you're hearing this, Back in 4 BC, and you're hearing finally the prophesied Savior, and you know, God is coming to the earth. Yes, He's going to save us. Yes, He's going to rescue us, which means He's going to save us from our enemies. He's, and in that case, it would have been Rome. And I'm telling you, the Roman occupation, the Roman fist would have been very bloodied, very violent, very unjust. So the idea of a Savior coming, delivering the world from Roman occupation, I mean, that sounded sweet, but no, that's not why it came. Okay, surely the Savior has come to deliver us from the ravages of famine that this part of the world gets hit time and time and time again. We live like basically on the breadline our whole life. Surely He's come to deliver us from that. No. Surely He's come to deliver us from the economic injustice in the world. It could have gone on and on. No. (laughs) The Lord came to save people from their sins. From their sins. Now again, this word before sins would have really ticked them off. He came to save His people from their sins. Because again, I could understand a Savior coming to save us from other people's sins. The enemies out there, other people who are doing wrong against us. But here it is. He came to save His people from their sins. Now let's talk about sin for a moment. And again, this word can conjure up a whole lot of interesting feelings and thoughts, Christian or non-Christian alike, depending on your upbringing, depending on the world you got brought up in, your culture, this word can connotate different meanings. I remember being, when I was young, I didn't quite understand everything that was going on with Bill Clinton when his name was all over the media once upon a time. And I recognized there was some scandal happening. The president of the United States caught in some issue. But I remember seeing him be, uh, at a meeting with a group of people at the White House when he finally came clean that he was being naughty. And he stood before people after admitting it. And he said these words, I have sinned. I have sinned. And again, it wasn't in a church service or religious connotation. This was the president of America at the time. So this word in different cultures and different ways can carry different kind of effects. But again, often the big idea we have, or most people tend to think that sin is primarily the breaking of divine rules. The breaking of, can we throw that first one up? So the first, the first slide up, or the next slide up. <clears throat> And it's this idea that, that God in the cosmos authority that He sits in has set these precedent for mankind to follow. 
and to sin means you are breaking. Now, you're breaking divine rules. Now, the perfect, um, I guess, uh, interpretation of the word sin, particularly in the New Testament, is actually quite simple. It's this idea of missing the mark, missing God's mark. But we can often have this idea that this sin is the breaking of divine rules. Now, as much as that has a, there's a certain truth to that, it's not the whole picture. Because the very first recorded divine rule, if I can put it that way, that mankind was ever given or written, we have known as the Ten Commandments. And this is the big ten. Like, this is the, like, you don't even have to be a church person to understand this list. Because it's got all the big ones, like, don't murder, don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. Parents, is that a good one? For, that should be, like, right at the top of the list, or at least number two. Right? Great. Thanks, parents. So, but funny enough, right at the top of the list is this one. Number one on the, on the big list, on the big 10 is this. It writes, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the number one before don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Don't have any other gods before me. In other words, it's, if, it's arguing that the primary way to define sin is not simply just the doing of bad things, but rather the making of good things into the ultimate thing. Now you've got to catch this because this can be subtle, but this is huge. It's as if to suggest that sin, to miss the mark, isn't simply seen in the big, evil, dark, vicious things, but it's simply making good things into the ultimate thing. Taking something that in and of itself is it's not bad, it's, it could just be good. But when you make it the center of your world, that's when a whole lot of things can start to form out of balance. And I'm telling you, I see this happen. You've probably seen this happen a million times in your life as well, people that you know. It happens in relationships all the time. Someone will take a relationship, which is arguably a good thing, and make it the center of their world. But when you make another person, another person the center of your world, and you put the responsibility on someone's shoulders that only God puts His hands up to willingly take on our behalf to be the center of your world, that is far too much responsibility to give to any one person. Because if a person is in the center of your world, the moment they show their humanity, the moment they let you down, or the moment they disappoint you, your whole world can fall apart. It's the same if you make your career the center of your world. Again, a career, a good thing. But if it's, you make it the ultimate thing, the moment your career goes downhill or the other way, your, your career blows up, it can begin to lead you to all kinds of areas. And we've seen people, what success has done to people, what failure has done to people. And we can list example after example when you take something good and you turn it into the ultimate thing. And this is a huge problem. Again, this is this idea of sin, taking something that's good and making it the ultimate. Now, Stay with me because our culture, pop culture, the world that we live in, easily balks against this idea. And I understand why, because part of me does too. Is this to suggest that the problem with the world we're in, surely it's not something internal. We can see, can't we, the problems of the world. Surely the problems of the world are external. The problems in our world are clearly seen. The big ones are racism, economic injustice, <laughs> prejudice. Extremist politics. I mean, these are, the, these are the big issues, not some quasi-spiritual idea of breaking divine rules. Like, th this is the problem, these massive areas. Therefore, it's not a spiritual solution that is needed. Surely it's just a human solution that is needed. The problem is this. When the Enlightenment happened a couple of hundred years ago and technology took off and we had the ability to travel and write and communicate, we were convinced that humanity had finally arrived and we were mature. But yet there has been more 
um, war, there's been more injustice, there's been more slavery, there's been more poverty since the modern era. As if to say that human solutions have never solved the human problem. In fact, human solutions seem to just make the human problems bigger. And so right at the heart, come on, you got to hear this, of the Christian hope is that what Jesus came to address wasn't some peripheral issue. He came to address the very root cause of all evil on the planet. He came to save people from their sins. The root of where all other evil flows from, the rule of where all pain and death essentially flows from. Again, don't take my word for it. This has been something that Christians, non-Christians, philosophers, theologians, you name it, scholars have been writing about for thousands of years, trying to get their head around it. And there's one such writer who actually helped this make a lot of sense to me. He has a great name. His name is Jonathan Edwards. (laughs) And he was a um, theological philosopher, wrote an awful lot. He was an American back in the 18th century. And he argued this. He said, human society, human society, so all all of us, is deeply fragmented when anything but God is our highest love. Not our only love, but our, our highest, primary, the center of our world. He says, he's arguing here, this is fascinating to me, that the personal, our personal state with God, wherever that is, has an effect for better or for worse on the world around us. So he's saying human society is deeply fragmented when anything but God is our highest love. He gives a few examples. He says, if our highest goal in life is the good of our family, now again, I wouldn't say it's an evil thing. I think it's a terrific thing. But he would argue, or his point argues that if that's the highest goal, the good of your family, then we'll tend to care less for other families. I mean, well, that's not too bad. Well, let's go on. If our highest goal in life or our highest love is the good of our nation or our tribe or our race, well, that can lead down a whole lot of paths eventually down to things like nationalism or even worse, racism. Again, if you're, (laughs) which I think we can all be caught in this one, if our individual happiness is our highest goal or our highest love, then we'll tend to put our own economic and power interests ahead of others. And so his argument is this, but if you reverse it, if you put God at the center of your world, and God as your highest love, and God as your highest priority, eventually what will happen is God's priorities will flow out of you. And it will na- there will be a natural progression of you caring about all families, all races, all classes, and caring about the whole world in general. And the point of all this is to say, is that if Jesus just came to address a specific evil, like Roman occupation, or economic injustice, or famine, He truly wouldn't have dealt with the issue at its core. Jesus came to address the root cause of all the issues that are plaguing humanity and they're still here today that's why he came to address the root issue that is in the heart of all men and women sin and he came to save the world from sin now again we might protest that and say well hang on hang on so you're trying to say there's a root cause to all the things I'm doing wrong in my life. I can understand it being that simple for other people. Like I see what other people do and I can judge other people. They're wrong. They're right. They're evil. They're good. But I'm much more nuanced than that. I'm a complicated being. You can't just brand me and say it's because I have sin. I can say that for everyone else, but not me. And if you are to protest like that, like I often do, I want to turn your attention to an incredible interview that took place by a 
uh, investigative journalist and author known as Philip Yancey, who was a huge student of the post-communist era out of kind of the Eastern Soviet bloc in Europe. And when after the Berlin Wall fell and Russia started to come alive again and people started kind of waking up to all the atrocities that have happened over several decades with the killing of tens of millions of their own country people, he interviewed one such person who, who grew up their whole life not realizing everything that was happening in his nation. And as it came to light, not only did he come to faith in Christ because of this, but this is also what he said. And it's recorded. He said, I had no idea this is a man from Russia. I had no idea that things like this were taking place, meaning all the atrocities under communism in his nation. And again, I'm going to have a swipe at communism just in case you're a communist here and going, no, 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 I'm not. This is, I'm just reading about something from history here. He said, I became a communist with the best of ideals to fight racism and poverty, to bring about a just society. But now I learned that we created a monster. And he goes on. We saw, and this is super important to understand, he said, we saw the evil in others, right? The capitalists, the rich, the exploiters, but we didn't see it in ourselves. I have learned to distrust any utopian philosophy, especially one that sets us against them because the danger of evil is inside who? <laughs> All of us. And he, he put his finger right on the issue here. This isn't something that's just for one type of person or one kind of action. The tendency is in all of us. And again, you might protest and say, this is an offensive idea to me, that God would call me a sinner or God would call out my sin or that there's something internally inside of me that needs to be made right, that God would judge me like that, that God would set His own benchmark of right and wrong and then judge me for not living up to His standard. And again, I totally understand that protest. But if you talk to any of the residents in Russia during the 20th century, or most of Europe for that matter, affected by many of the wars there, they would have no problem in saying there is such an absolute as evil or such an absolute as sin in man because they saw it. They saw the evil. They saw the brokenness of mankind firsthand. So the notion that God is a God who could judge, no problem to them. The radical thought was this, and here's the point. The radical thought wasn't that God would judge sin. That they understood. That they thought evil needed to be judged. Sin needed to be corrected. What they couldn't get their head around and what Christians are caught up in for the better is this notion, not just God judges sin, but that God forgives sin. That Jesus came to save the world from their sin. And this is why as Christians, we put so much emphasis on worshiping God, on singing songs. We're caught up in this notion. Again, we can understand a perfect God causing judgment of sin, but He came with a message of forgiveness of sin. And I, for one, am super grateful that God has offered forgiveness for my sin. And every time I'm confronted with my humanity and the sin inside of me and the broken parts inside of me, I'm not staring face to face with an angry God or a God of judgment. He poured His judgment on His Son, Jesus, on the cross. Therefore, all of humanity could know His forgiveness and could know that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Which is good news. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is how it concludes. The angel finishes up with one last sucker punch. <laughs> All this took place to fulfill what, had, what the Lord had said through the prophet. And he was referring to Isaiah here, who lived about 600 years before Christ. And he prophesied that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Now what's remarkable, it seems like for 600 years, none of the residents of Israel took notice of this idea of a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. It's like they thought it was like, you know, allegory until it actually happened. Like, ah, oh, like this is, 
God actually told us this would happen. Uh, there you go. We never thought that. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel wasn't his name, but it's what people called him when they looked at Jesus, when they saw the life of Jesus, when they saw what Jesus accomplished, when they saw who he was, and ultimately when they saw his death and then his victorious resurrection, they concluded that this man that they saw, this man that they heard, this man that they walked with, Jesus Christ, son of Joseph, son of God, that this indeed was more than just a man. This was God with us. And so in a world where there was so much going on, it wasn't all that was going on. There was now something else with them. Yes, there was suffering with them. Yes, there was depression of Rome with them. Yes, famine was always just one bad harvest away. But in the middle of that, there was now something else with them. God was with them. And forevermore now, we are too easily caught up with everything that is, can be so easily caught up with the idea rather, with everything that is wrong with the world. And indeed, it's not hard to see everything that's broken, the effects of sin, the effects of evil, evil, yes, racism, yes, injustice, yes, hatred, yes, wars. But that's not all there is to the human story now. God is now with us. And for the last 2,000 years, there's been a shining light upon all of human endeavor to know that our story isn't the end of the story, that God entered our story and God has forever now offered humanity hope because He is with us. And here's the thing, when Jesus arrived, when He came to the earth, yeah, Rome was present. Yeah, the ravages of feminine happened. Yeah, they were massacring children, but yet that wasn't all that was happening. There was now the sound of a baby. And it was faint and it seemed insignificant. And often that's how God can sometimes, to be honest, sound in our lives. And we can be so aware of everything broken, difficult, hard, unjust in our life. And sometimes God might seem distant. And sometimes it might just sound like the faint sounds of a newborn baby there. Hardly the sound of a roaring lion, more like the sound of a bleating lamb. But don't mistake, sometimes when God seems most silent, as though He's absent, He's never absent. God is with us. And in, in an attempt to, and I'll finish with this, in an attempt to explain the significance of God being incarnate, God being a person, that's where we get our New Testament. The New Testament writers were always out writing, trying to explain how does this affect our life? Why is this such a big deal to us? And it's an incredible attempt at explaining something that's almost inexplainable. But one of the best places I've found of a great attempt to explain how do we make sense of God with us in the middle of a world that is so broken, the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who lived in the heart of the Roman Empire, those in Rome, and he writes this. In the book of Romans, he says, For if, for if by the trespass, and that word trespass is interchangeable with the word sin, so if the sin of the one man, and the one man is referring to Adam, the first man, and indeed the first person who ever sinned. If by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through the one man, death reigned. That's why we see evil. It's why we see pain in the world. The word he uses here is death. Death reigned through, um, with, um, death reigned through that one man. And here's the clincher. He said then, I want you to remember these two words. How much more, how much more then, if death reigned through sin, how much more would those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And this is how, this is how Scripture gives it to us, that yes, 
There's a whole lot of maybe death reigning in the world, but there's something that is much more than death and it is the life of Christ. So in other words, he's saying this, yes, you might look around the world and see there's a whole lot of injustice, but I'm telling you, because God is now with us, there is much more hope in the world. Yes, you might look around and see there's a whole lot of darkness in the world, but because of Jesus, there is much more light. Yeah, we look around and there's a whole lot of hatred in the world, but because God is with us, there is much more love in the world. And you might look at your own life and simply count up all the things that are wrong with you and all the things that are broken. But I'm telling you, because God is with you, there is much more to your life than suffering or injustice or abuse. There is much more to your life because of Christ. And because God is with us, there is much more to your life. And maybe you've been too quick to define your life by things that have gone wrong. Come on, hear me. This is so much more than a nice Christmas card. You've got to hear the message of Christmas. Because of Christ now, God is forever saying that there is more to your life than your mistakes, than your sin, than your error, than what people have done against you. There is more to your life than your failed business or your failed marriage or your failed children or your failed parents or your failed health or your failed endeavors or your failed morality. There is more to your life than your failures. There is much more. Was that the gong? God saying, okay, get off. (laughs) Maybe it is. There is much more to your life because God is with you. So this Christmas, this Christmas, as you hear the carols and you walk through Maya, I don't know if anyone goes to Maya, the other part of the plaza now, the new wing, does anyone go online? Whatever it is, listen to Buble, listen to Bieber, listen to Mariah. I don't know who you listen to these days. Um, When you hear the story and hear this notion of a, a little baby, remember this, remember this. It might be faint. It might be faint in your life, this idea that God's with me, but He's with you. He's with you. And I'm hoping over these next few weeks as we talk through this series, as much as commercialization and the busyness of this season grabs our attention, we're gonna see everything that's wrong with the world and all the things we've got left to do. I want you to be able to pause enough to know that there's someone who is for you and He offers much more for your life and He is for you. And He is greater than anything that could ever be set up against you. And I want to encourage you to come back for this series because we're going to explore together how there is much more to the story of Christmas than maybe we first thought. So Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful tonight that you brought these people together in this moment and all of their lives that are beautiful and at times painful and maybe even confusing for them at times. I thank you that you promised you would be with us And tonight for every person, whatever it is they're walking through, may they be reminded tonight that He who's with them is greater and much more than anything else in the world. May our hearts again be reminded of the beauty of Christ, the significance of what His life now means for our lives. And may our hearts be kept from ever going cold, lukewarm, or callous to this message. May we forever be the loudest people in the room because of how loudly you've loved us. And for those here tonight, God, that maybe have never opened their lives and their heart up to this message, to Jesus, I pray that tonight would be the beginning of a significant change in their world, that their hearts would be opened up to reality, that you're for them. In fact, before we finish tonight, just with every head bowed, I want to give an invitation to, for everyone to pray together. And I'm going to ask us all to repeat a prayer with me, a very simple prayer. But 
It's a prayer of saying yes to Jesus, putting your trust in Jesus. It's making your first step for some of you to believing in God. And tonight, if you're like that, if you're honest and saying, man, I don't have yet all my questions answered, but I definitely know something about God now makes sense to me and I wanna begin my journey in following Jesus. I wanna pray for you tonight. I'm gonna ask everyone to pray this prayer together. But if you're like that, that kind of resonates with you and you wanna make this prayer personal tonight of committing your life to Jesus Christ. So I know who I'm including in this prayer. Could you just give me a quick wave? Lift your hand up, I'll see it. If you could put it straight back down. We're about to pray all together. And if you wanna be included in this prayer tonight of committing your life to Christ and inviting Him into your life. Look across here. God loves you so much and He's for you. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ tonight. Could I see your hand as well? Maybe you made a decision like this some time ago and tonight you feel led that you need to recommit your life back to Him. Okay, let's pray this prayer out loud together after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for loving me. Thank You for being with me. Thank You for forgiving me of sin. Tonight I turn to Jesus. I thank You for forgiveness. I thank You for a new start. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. If you did pray that prayer for the first time, love to meet you. Please swing by our Connect Lounge. We'd love to hear your story. Other than that, have the greatest week. Merry Christmas. It's great to be a Queenslander. I look forward to seeing you for part two next week. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.